If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, it's also there in your worship guide. Don't panic when you open your worship guide and there's a whole lot more than just chapter 4 there. We're not going to read all of it, but I wanted that all in front of you. We will read the first 22 verses of chapter 4 though. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Our Father, I pray that through your Spirit, you would break through hardened hearts and minds. Jesus, we would hear you calling us. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered Anymore, but Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. 
Amen. Now, I'm not sure what you were doing yesterday morning at 5 a.m., but I have three daughters, so I was watching the royal wedding. Uh, actually, we were up even earlier. We were watching the pregame going in to the royal wedding, and, uh, and then we just kind of watched for the rest of the day. Uh, but apparently, we were not alone in this. I actually read that up to three billion people worldwide watched the royal wedding, either watching it live or watching it later recorded. Up to three billion people. Now, there's only 7.6 billion people in the world. So that's something like 39.47%, just off the top of my head. Almost 40% of the world watching this royal wedding. And, and as far as weddings go, it was, I mean, it was a wedding. <laughs> it was a decent wedding. It was pretty good. Uh, there were times where all these different, you know, pastors, they'd get up there. And, and even though I'm a pastor, I was having a hard time staying awake uh, watching some of this. But then you had Bishop Michael Curry get up there. And Bishop Michael Curry was thinking that there are 39.47% of the world is watching this. And he said, this is an opportunity to preach. And he got up there and he preached. And I was like, he's preaching Jesus. He got up there and he clearly and he passionately preached Jesus. And several times he was winding it down. And then it's like he almost remembered, hey, there's 3 billion people watching this. This is an opportunity to preach. And he just kept going and going, and it was glorious. This is what we have here in Acts. Peter sees an opportunity to preach. He's just raised up this crippled man, a man who'd been a fixture in the temple. He'd been begging there for over 30 years, crippled. And Peter raises him up. He leaps up, and now he's clinging to Peter, and he's looking out, and there's Thousands of people out there where their jaws just dropped looking at what had happened. And Peter says, this is an opportunity to preach. And so he preaches. And this is the second sermon that we have in the book of Acts. And I'm not going to go into all of the details of the sermon. But I find it comforting to know that what he preaches in his second sermon is pretty much what he preached in his first sermon. And he, he did this. He told the people who they were. They were the people who killed Jesus. Then he told them who Jesus was. Jesus is the one who rose from the dead and is now victorious. Then he told them what Jesus offers. Jesus offers them now forgiveness in his name. And then he told them what they were to do. They were to repent and they were to believe the gospel. You kind of find this over and over in preaching. The pastor tells who you are tells who Jesus is, tells us that forgiveness is now offered in his name, and then tells you what to do, repent and believe the gospel. And what I love is, is while Peter is preaching here, uh, the priest and the Sadducees, the religious rulers, they actually send authorities to go and to arrest Peter. The captain of the temple guard comes and arrests him, and I want you to imagine the scene, if you will. Well, let's just imagine if it were to happen here, if, if I were preaching and all of a sudden the, the East Precinct police comes in 
And they're like, there he is. And they start coming down the aisle and I'm still preaching to you. And then they come up and as they're handcuffing me, I'm being dragged off and I'm going like, believe in Jesus. You can have this life too. (laughs) As As they're carting me away and I'm pleading with you, you can have this life. That's exactly what happened to Peter. He's being dragged off to prison while pleading. I wonder what would happen here if that were to happen. You know, if if Jeff Heine were to come up afterwards, kind of give an altar call. You heard Joel's plea. You want to do just as I am until somebody comes. Think, Think anybody would come forward wanting that life? Five thousand people came to believe. 5,000 people. They, they saw that. They saw what Peter was offering there. And, and despite the fact that Peter was being handcuffed and dragged off, they, they said, I want that. Whatever Peter has, I want it. It actually wasn't even 5,000 people. We read in four, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, there was 5,000 men. They only counted men as a, since they were the heads of the household at the time. But likely this was about 15,000 people. I read that Jerusalem at this time only had a population of about 40,000. So just off the top of my head, that's like 37.5% of the people there. <laughs> 37% of the people come to know Jesus. Now, the ironic thing of all of this, I, well, there's a, there's a bunch of ironic things, but, but one of the things that really strikes me is that in Peter's sermon, one of the themes of his sermon is about times of refreshing coming. I mean, look at verse three, verse 19, or chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So picture again, he's being carted off. Times are refreshing. They're coming. Yet people could look at him and see that what he was preaching was real. The times of refreshing he was promising, they were were tangible to these people. And they wanted that type of refreshing, a refreshing that's not dependent upon any circumstance. Type of refreshing that didn't matter if you were being arrested. Refreshing that came despite your sin, despite your poverty, despite whatever persecution might come. Wouldn't you love to have a refreshment like that? A refreshment given even in the midst of your worst work stresses. A refreshment given in the midst of a financial crisis. A refreshment given in the middle of a marital conflict or or single loneliness. A refreshment that is not dependent upon any circumstance. The Spirit of God made that offer for refreshment tangible for these people, and they wanted it. Last week, I asked the question, what does the church have to offer the world? This. 
This is what we have to offer the world. I mentioned last week that the miracles we see in Acts are miracles to alleviate suffering. The miracles are miracles of healing, and they all have a redemptive purpose to them. They're all signs. Uh, But now what we see is the cost of these miracles. There's always going to be a cost to these miracles. Every miracle we see in the book of Acts is going to get the miracle worker in trouble. Every one of them. In other words, in order to alleviate the suffering of others, you need to be prepared to suffer. Peter heals this man, immediately gets arrested. Now, if this just happened here, or maybe one other place, you couldn't say that this is a pattern, but this happens every time you see a miracle in Acts. The miracle worker gets in trouble and suffers. It's not just here in Acts, you see it all in the Gospels when Jesus, he would do things like even raise Lazarus from the dead. First thing that happens after he raises Lazarus from the dead is the people begin plotting Jesus' death. And then they begin plotting Lazarus' death. (laughs) Suffering comes to a world that offers healing. Hear me, church, This this is our call Part of our call to be a Christian is a call to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. What this means is we voluntarily suffer in order to bring healing into the world. And what this means is there might be times that the Lord asks you to give money until it hurts. Give your money away until it hurts. He might ask you to be so hospitable that you begin to suffer. He might ask you to stand up so much for the oppressed that your reputation takes a hit. But to bring healing into the world will mean the sacrificial death of the church. That's the cost. We feel this to some degree every time we do something like Uh, Even forgive someone. You forgive someone who has really hurt you. I mean, really hurt you. That forgiveness is going to cost you. Because in that moment, what you want to do is you want to lash out at that person in anger. Justifiably so. But instead of doing that, what you do is think, no, I'm going to offer forgiveness and healing And I'm going to absorb the wrath that I want to lash out on this person. And you absorb it. And some of you have done that. You know it hurts. It can even feel like death as you forgive someone. It hurts so bad not to lash out. But here's the glorious thing about the gospel. Resurrection always follows death. The gospel is not just the message we believe. It's also the, the message we live by. We die to ourselves. We we make a sacrificial death, but then resurrection follows. Times of refreshing come after that death. New life, new joy comes when we sacrificially lay down our lives for others. The Lord brings healing to the world, and then he renews our own souls. The gospel is not just the message we believe. It's the message we live by. 
Now, after Peter and John are arrested, they spend the night in jail. The next day, they're dragged before um, the religious leaders there, and they're put on trial. These leaders, they ask them, they begin to question them. Verse 7, they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? I love that. That's just like putting it on a T for Peter. It's like, really? Please, Peter, tell me by what power and by what name did you do this? Okay, I think I will. And, and Peter, he, he launches in uh, to proclaim Jesus. He boldly, powerfully, unashamedly says, Jesus is the one who did this. And there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Salvation is only provided through Jesus. Now, I know that this is not a popular message in our day. It's not a popular message in any day to say that Jesus is the only way. It certainly wasn't a popular message to Peter in that culture, I mean, Roman culture, they had thousands of gods. Everybody on their chariots had like the coexist bumper stickers, all right? They, they, you know, the Roman peace that they kept, one of the ways they kept the peace is when they would go and they would conquer a nation, they would then allow that nation to keep all of their gods, to keep all of their religions. It was as pluralistic as a society as you could have But here Peter unashamedly, boldly, powerfully says, Jesus is the only way. He could say this because he saw the resurrected Lord. And Jesus himself had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I mean, if there was another way, explain the cross. I mean... Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, when he's out in the garden and he's praying, he's sweating drops of blood. He's so fervently praying. And do you remember what he prayed? Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup. I mean, if there's any other options out there, I'd like it. (laughs) Please remove this. How cruel would God have to be to say, well, actually, son, there's lots of ways. There's lots of ways. I mean, every religion is equally valid. Uh, matter of fact, you just try to do, do good works, and yeah, I'm going to let you in. But I know people, you know, they like a lot of options, so go through with this just to provide one more way. Jesus went to the cross because there was no other way. Sin had to be dealt with. Our sin had to be dealt with. You can't just sweep it under the rug. It needs to be nailed to the cross. The justice of God had to be satisfied. Salvation only comes through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So this is what they preached. As they're preaching this, I mean, the authorities, they're just astonished to see such boldness. I mean, these are just commoners. These guys are uneducated. But, but look at the boldness. I read this sermon, and I think Peter has come a long way. 
He has come a long way, hasn't he? He doesn't even seem like the same man as he was just a few chapters before. I mean, look at what Peter says. Chapter 3, verse 12. Look at this. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Did you hear what Peter just said? I mean, did you hear it? Peter, Peter is looking at these people and he's saying, you denied Jesus. You denied, when Jesus was on trial, you didn't stand up for him. You denied him. I mean, if that isn't the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is. How can Peter say something like this? It's because Peter isn't just saying you. He knows he's part of that you. He had denied Jesus. And he's saying, we denied Jesus. But you know what? Jesus painfully restored me and forgave me and has given me new life. And now he gives that offer to everyone. Hear me. Peter's message was not so powerful despite his past failure when he denied Jesus. His sermon was powerful because he had once been a denier of Jesus. And he's saying, listen, as a fellow denier, I was given new life. I'm a completely different person because of Jesus. And we see that here. He's not the same. Peter can never get over the fact that he had been forgiven by Jesus. He can't help but share. All right, so how did these authorities respond? Well, they essentially tell Peter and John, you guys need to shut up and go home. Just just shut up and go home. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Do you see the absolute lunacy of what's happening here? I know no other word for it. It's it's lunacy. These people literally cannot deny a miracle just happened. I mean, they knew the crippled guy. Probably half of Jerusalem knew the crippled guy. And now he's, you know, up, jumping around, dancing. He's right next to Peter. You can't deny it. But despite that, they do not believe. Never once when they're getting together and they're huddled up, like, I mean, real miracles happen. Never once do do you hear someone say this. Hey, guys, just want to throw this out there. What if we're wrong? 
What if we were wrong about Jesus? What if we were wrong? Never happens. They cannot deny the miracle, but they certainly can deny the authority by which that miracle came. And they refuse to submit to it. Now, what we see here is that people will always, some people will always be offended by Jesus. Some people will always be offended by Jesus. Uh, These were the religious leaders who earlier in the Gospels, you know, they were always trying to trick Jesus. You know, always trying to ask him some question to stump him. Jesus, is is it okay? Are we supposed to, as Jews, pay taxes to Rome? Jesus is like, you have a coin? Give him a coin. He's like, whose inscriptions on this? Whose image? Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. It's like, boom, checkmate. I mean, just like, you, you don't get in an argument with a person who's omniscient, right? You just you, you shouldn't do it. You're going to lose. But this is what they did. They all huddled together afterwards and like, he got us again. (laughs) But never once did they think, maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he really is the son of God. Instead, this is what they think. He got us again and he keeps getting us. But maybe we could come up with another question. (laughs) Let's just keep firing away questions. But they never come to believe. These people are always offended by Jesus. Some people will always be offended. Now, what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and what we've seen every day since this book uh, was finished being written, is that whenever the gospel goes forth and people clearly hear it, they're either offended or they're set free. They're either offended or they are set free. It'll be one of those two things. When we go out and we share the gospel with people, uh, we become a fork in the road. People hit us, and if they clearly hear the gospel, they're going to go one of two ways. And our confidence is that the Spirit of God will awaken the hearts of some, and they will believe that offer forgiveness in Jesus' name, and they will receive it, and it will indeed be good news. But some will always be offended. Do you know what the three most volatile words are that you could ever say to someone? The the three most volatile, explosive words you could ever say. It's it's not the words you're thinking of. It's, It's this. I forgive you. I forgive you. You say, I forgive you to someone and, and one person might melt. Their heart might just melt, and they might be overjoyed because the guilt that they have been feeling all these years, this burden, this weight, knowing that there is something in between the two of you, that they had somehow wronged you, and finally you've forgiven them of that, that weight is removed, and, and a relationship is restored, and they're overjoyed, and they're probably going to hug you and, and with tears. Just thank you. 
other people will have this reaction. How dare you say you forgive me? You forgive me as if I did something wrong that needed forgiving? Who do you think you are to offer forgiveness to me? And they'll be deeply offended by your pardon. This is what the gospel does. The gospel goes forth, and some people, when they hear it clearly, they will, they will be set free. And other people will be deeply offended because you're saying, I'm the one in the wrong? They would have to recognize that when they look at the horrific death of Jesus, that was because of them. That's a hard thing to swallow. They would have to recognize that they don't sit on the throne of their own life, that Jesus sits on the throne. It's a hard thing to swallow. They become deeply offended by the gospel. This hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and it never will change. The gospel is a fork in the road. And hear me, if, if you have never been liberated by the gospel or offended by the gospel, this just means you have never clearly heard the gospel. Uh, we live in you know, the buckle of the Bible belt. Um, as Flannery O'Connor would say, the, the Christ-haunted South. Uh, the best way I know to describe the South is, is this. Most of the South has been inoculated to the gospel. It's been inoculated to the gospel. And by that, you know what an inoculation is, where you receive just enough of something to then build a resistance to it. And so you grew up in the South, you've heard about Jesus, you've heard about church, you've heard a few random verses in the Bible, you've heard these things. And so when somebody comes to preach to the gospel, to you, you hear the first couple of words and you're like, I got it, got it, Jesus, be good, you know, all this, yeah, I got it. And it never actually sinks in. But if you've never been liberated the gospel or offended by the gospel, you've never clearly heard the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God and he died the death that you should have died for your sins. But he rose to life and now offers new life and forgiveness in his name. It's the gospel that we need. It's the gospel invitation that's always there. And hear me, church, our mission Hopefully, been, I mean, I've been ringing this bell for weeks now, all right? Our mission is to share this, to share the gospel, to go into the world and share this no matter the cost. I love Peter's response, Peter and John's response to the authorities when they're told basically to shut up and go home. Uh, look at verse 18. So, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Peter's essentially saying this, guys, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to be disrespectful. I hear what you're saying. But given the choice between obeying you or obeying the guy you killed but then rose back to life and has told me to preach this, I'm going with the resurrected guy. But you do whatever you want to do. Choice is yours. 
but I'm with Jesus. And they boldly proclaim the gospel. Church, this is our mission. Will some be offended? Yes. Some will be offended. Will some be saved and liberated? Yes. Absolutely. Will it cost us? Yes. Some of you might lose your jobs. Some of you might lose your wealth, some of your possessions. Some of you might lose your reputation or your freedom. It's the cost. But there's always resurrection on the other side. Times of refreshing are still promised to us despite any circumstance. The healing of the world comes through the sacrifice of the church. When Jesus gave his great commission, he ends it by saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that promise for Jesus to be with us is that he will be with us as we go on our mission. Not that he's just going to be with you here. But as you're going and you're making disciples, he says, you go and make disciples. Times are refreshing are going to come to you. Why? Because I will be with you through it all, even to the end of the age. And hear me, when the Lord's presence is with us, well, in his presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pray with me, church. Lord Jesus, I simply ask that through your spirit you make the words that we have heard real to us. Embed them deep in our hearts. This week, may we be completely different people. Transformed by your gospel. And emboldened to proclaim it. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.